0: Welcome to The Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Friday, November tenth, 2023. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. You can find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. My guest today for the 48th episode of The Hale Report is Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House and a 2012 presidential candidate. A prolific author, he is a frequent Fox News contributor and is chairman of Gingrich 360. Welcome, Newt. Thank you for joining me today.
1: I am delighted to be with you, and I enjoy very much listening to you in various circumstances, so I'm really looking forward, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
0: I can't wait. And are you speaking to us from D.C., by the way?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm in McLean, Virginia. Okay. All right. from Washington.
0: Well, we're going to discuss your new book, which I've read and highly recommend to our, our listeners, March to the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, written with your longtime associate, Joe Gaylord, who I understand hails from Illinois, where we're recording from.
1: Yes. Yeah, that, that's right. He's he's originally in Illinois, although— His heart was owned by Iowa in college, and he's never quite recovered.
0: (laughs) I love the Midwest, so that's Iowa's okay, too. Uh, So first, a short introduction, covering the full sweep uh, of Newt's highly consequential political career, as well as his 42 other books, would require a 10-part series, So for our listeners, I'm going to focus on his time as Speaker of the House from 1994 to 1998, when a Republican agenda was successfully enacted under a Democratic president, Bill Clinton. Newt Gingrich was a peripatetic youth, an Army brat who lived around the country and in Europe. He began his career as a history professor, but made the switch from academics to politics very early on, becoming Georgia's sixth congressional district representative at the tender age of 36. He served in that position for the next 20 years. His knowledge of American history, however, permeates his remarks. His new book gives outsiders insight into a process, as well as the leadership position that has become front and center in American political life today. It is both a cautionary tale and a roadmap for 2024. As he says in his conclusion, writing this book was not simply an exercise in history. History is important, but its real importance is for the future. So, Newt, to begin, as our listeners know, I always ask my guests about the path they took to getting where they are today. Your interest in politics began very early, I understand, with the zoo. I wonder if you could let our our readers know about that story.
1: (laughs) Well... I've always loved the natural world and I've always loved animals and uh, my dad was serving in Korea, we were living in Pennsylvania, I was born in Harrisburg, and uh, my mother allowed me one August afternoon to go to a double feature about African animals at a, a theater downtown. Now, this I'm old enough, this was back when theaters were air conditioned and that made them exciting because most homes didn't have air conditioning. And so I sat through this double feature and I was all excited about animals. And I walked out of the theater about four o'clock in the afternoon. And um, right next to the theater, there was a little sign that pointed through an alleyway and said City Hall. And my grandmother had always talked to me about that you have to do your duty as a citizen. And she took this very seriously. And I thought to myself, well, Harrisburg ought to have a zoo. So I guess as a citizen, I should go work on this. So I walked through the alley and went up the stairs of the old uh, brick building, which is now gone, and I uh, asked the receptionist about zoos, and she said, "Well, I guess that's the parks department." So I went upstairs, uh, walked up these old wooden stairs, and one of the reasons I became a historian is you, you could never, in social science get the following sequence. So I go in, the guy who's the actual head of the department's not there. But his civil servant deputy director, who'd been around for a long time, said, oh, let, let me show you. And he showed me that they used to have a zoo in Wildwood Park and that they closed it during rationing in World War II and pulled out records of what it costs to feed a lion or a zebra. And then when it was done, he said, now, you know, your job is to come back next Tuesday and talk to the city council and tell them why Harrisburg needs a zoo. He said, that's that's how the system works. Then he picked up the phone. Okay, so how old were you? I was 11. At this time? Okay. (laughs) He picked up the phone and called my grandmother, who he had dated 30 years earlier. This is why these (laughs) kind of connections don't come through when you do aggregated uh, modeling. Uh, And said, I'm sending Nudie (laughs) home by cab, but he has to come back next Tuesday. So on Tuesday, I went back. My mother thought this whole thing was nuts. And I waited my turn at the very end of the city council meeting i got up people just before me were complaining about garbage collection on their street and i gave a pitch for why we needed a zoo well you're you're the local reporter it's a slow august afternoon and your choice is uh you can cover um the usual stuff or here's this kind of nice kid asking for a zoo so obviously the next day there was an article on you know an uh, 11-year-old asked for a zoo at city council meeting. About five uh, years later, my, dad, was, my dad was serving in Korea at the time, and he uh, writes my mother and says, keep him out of the newspapers. <laughs> well, that didn't last long, did it? <laughs> Apparently not. And so the, my other example was I went to see the local state representative who wanted to run for mayor, and he showed me some stuff, including a, a guidebook to the famous Tiergarten in Hamburg that he'd been to in the 30s. And then he, had, he figured he'd invested enough for my family to vote for him. So he sent me to this wonderful guy named Paul Walker, who used to be a correspondent uh, and then had opened up a weekly local newspaper. And uh, I went in and he said, I understand you think we should have a zoo? I said, yeah. He said, well, there's a typewriter. he um, write an article and I'll, I'll print it. So... I sat down, I said, I don't know how to type. He said, well, then you're not going to get printed, are you? So I sat down at this old manual typewriter, and I, I still type today with three fingers. Um, and I wrote an appeal to the people of Harrisburg for a zoo. So what can I tell you? Uh, that, 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 that was both where my political career began uh, and where uh, uh, the search for animals began.
0: That's a lovely story from a golden age, right? Now, however, we are in—it feels that we're in a a much uh, more—less innocent time, right? Uh, Based on your knowledge of American history, how big is the crisis that we're now facing? Um, You wrote America—so going right to the serious heart of the matter, you wrote that America is now in the deepest, most dangerous constitutional crisis since the hostility in the 1850s that led to secession and civil war. So, how did we get from the point that you talked about to this point now? How bad are things? Do you really think?
1: Well, I I would I would say, if you combine the foreign threats to our survival with our domestic bureaucratic decay and our cultural deep deep disagreement, this may be the greatest stress we have faced since Washington crossed the Delaware on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Um, I, I think it's, it's, And I think part of it is that we can't explain to ourselves, we, we can't take seriously uh, the demons that are out there. I mean, we, we are drifting sooner or later somewhere on the planet towards a nuclear war. Uh, and nobody has any really deep comprehension of how really horrifying this is and how probable it is. There are too many countries with nuclear weapons. Uh, Too many of them are run by dictators uh, who are haters. Um, It's estimated that North Korea will have 300 nuclear weapons by the end of the decade. Uh, And I could easily imagine Kim Jong-un deciding that he could never compete with South Korea, but he could conquer it. Um, Iran sooner or later is going to be tempted to take out Tel Aviv. And that's going to lead the Israelis uh, to attempt to take out the, the, the Iranian capabilities preemptively. Um, the Russians, we really don't know if Putin started to lose badly, whether or not he would go nuclear, but they keep developing nuclear capabilities. They have about 6,000 nuclear weapons. Uh, and you have to take seriously that you could stumble into a really frightening thing. And the Chinese now are developing a nuclear arsenal and, and building it at a very rapid rate. Uh, so I'm just saying, without being an alarmist, if you take seriously, the things that could go wrong. And, and you know this living in the city of Chicago. You, you can have a breakdown of civilization in ways that are horrifying uh, and people just shrug and keep going on. So um, I'm, I'm actually writing what will probably be a 30-part series in the American Spectator on how we got here because I think the roots of this problem go back at least to the early 60s. and we have, And I think you have three very different things. You have a political, cultural power struggle. You have a remarkable decline of um, the uh, whole process of uh, what's going on with uh, uh, the, the bureaucracies. I mean, it's astonishing how increasingly incompetent all of our bureaucracies are, including the Defense Department. And then you have uh, I think uh, very real challenges that we don't really have a clue to do. I mean, we lose more people to drug addiction annually, more, more people overdose than died in the entire eight years of the Vietnam War. Yeah. Uh, it's serious. So, yeah. You know, so so when I list all these different things together, I I think this is one of the, you know, Toynbee to in his great study of history um, argued that, that there are about 27 great civilizations that he studied, and he said all of them go through a period of challenge and response, and the ones that respond successfully continue to go, and the ones that don't respond successfully die. And I think we are entering a cycle here where the, 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 the amount of intelligence that would be required to solve these problems in parallel is breathtaking. I mean, we were very fortunate to have Washington when we needed him, to have Lincoln when we needed him, and I would argue to have FDR when we needed him. Uh, But um, even, even those three would, I think, find this to be a very challenging period. Well, bringing this back to economics as well,
0: many people link America's military superiority to the strength of the dollar. In this crisis, do you think the the enormous debt that we've accumulated is also a factor in creating weakness on an international basis. I mean, you were known as a very responsible steward of of U.S. debt. Um, How did we go from a surplus when you were Speaker to where we are today? I think we're paying a trillion dollars per year in interest alone, which amounts to about 5% of GDP. Yesterday, a Treasury offering failed to find enough buyers which was uh, really surprising, I think, to a lot of market observers. So uh, what, what is the linkage with the debt? It's, I mean, how do you look at that? Because you, you led a very different kind of Congress. Okay, well,
1: let me say, first of all, I feel a little bit intimidated because you know so much more about economics than I do. I know a little bit about economic history, but I would not uh, in any way claim to I'll uh, be able to, to uh, be an economist, but uh, but I would say, first of all, that the great base of American strength, from really the 1860s on, was the scale of our economy, um, and the fact that, for example, uh, we developed mass production, we developed a massive production of oil. We did, You know, somebody once said that we won World War II on a sea of oil. Um, At our peak in 1944, we produced more aircraft and more tanks than every other country in the world combined. Um, And by 1946, of course, most of our competitors had been bombed, either by us or by the the Germans and Japanese. So you you ended up in a brief period where we really were a hegemon. I mean, there was a period when our our total capability was astonishing. Um, We have now squandered most of that. Uh, we've allowed our, our manufacturing base to decay. We've adopted policies which have, are astonishingly self-destructive, including the whole uh, ultra-green ultra effort to make sure we don't use our own oil and gas so instead we can buy from Venezuela and Iran. Um, and and uh, as you point out, the debt is incredible. I look back, you know, we, we had balanced the budget the only four times in your lifetime when I was speaker. Uh, And it's doable. We could get back to a balanced budget within a decade if we were serious. But um, I was really proud of the fact that when I left office, Alan Greenspan made a speech saying that they had projected that we would probably have paid off the debt in 2009. And they had a working group at the Federal Reserve trying to figure out how would you manage the money supply if you had no debt? Something, by the way, we only did briefly in 1837. Uh Uh, now, Now, you know, for whatever it was worth, uh, that brief period of balance was, was, you know, neither George W. Bush nor any of the people around him understood how important it was. But I had always remembered that, that Britain beat Napoleon because they had a flood of money and they were able to sustain a coalition uh, from 1793 to 1815. Uh, and and I, I think that it's extraordinarily imprudent for us to be running these Jews' deaths. Furthermore, when you have government this big, it's just inherently corrupt and sloppy. Mm-hmm. I mean, when California loses $20 billion in unemployment compensation, literally stolen, $20 billion, uh, the first thing the Fed should do is demand that California repay the $19 billion, which is the federal part of it, uh, which they clearly is totally mismanaged. But everybody just cheerfully writes another check and another check and another check. And I think it's a very dangerous environment. And of course, you know, assuming that the core laws of supply and demand work, when you can't sell treasuries at the current offer, the price of the treasuries are going to go up. If the price of the treasuries go up, the largest debtor in the world is the U.S. government. So what you're doing is you're starting to go under a death spiral where you have to raise interest rates. To be able to to get people to buy your bonds which means that you have to pay more interest on the debt which means you're in deeper trouble and particularly when you have a political system that is totally absolutely incapable of organizing serious reform i mean yeah it's about leadership isn't it well leadership and being able to talk with the american people I, i always recommend to people that they read Tom Evans' remarkable book called The Education of Ronald Reagan, which is Reagan's eight years at General Electric. Uh, I, I began working with Reagan in 74. I began studying him in 65. Uh, and, and I, of course, served with him for eight years. Uh, I never fully understood how strategic Reagan's leadership skills were um, that until I read that book. You know, Reagan set out very methodically to do three things defeat the Soviet empire, relaunch the American economy, and rebuild a sense of the American spirit. And by the end of eight years, he'd achieved all three. I mean, it's, it's probably the most successful, purposeful administration in modern times. Mm. Well,
0: do, can you tell us, going back to congressional leadership, uh, what can you tell us about the the new speaker, Mike Johnson? I know you're close to Kevin McCarthy, but do you think that Speaker Johnson you know,
1: yeah, can... Kevin's a very dear friend. Both Kristen and I like Kevin very, very much. Um, and I think what happened with him was a tragedy. But sometimes history unfolds in ways you can't quite anticipate. Um, he ended up, you know, the, the conference shot itself in the head a number of times. And then finally found Mike Johnson, who I think... May have the patience to be pretty good. Now he's got a problem in that the the same uh, insane people who dist- went out of their way to destroy Kevin are totally unmanageable uh, and totally unrealistic. And so he's going to have to figure out a formula by which he runs the house, despite having it's a relatively small number right now. But he probably has a hand. You know, he's only got a, like a four or five of margin. So I was very fortunate. I, I had. 230 members the first time and 236 the second. So I could afford to have 10 or 15 people who are nuts and I could still govern. Um, And you have to assume something like that because Republicans really are the party of individualism where Democrats really are a machine. So Nancy Pelosi could run a house with four or five vote margin because it's a machine. Well, by definition, the reason people become Republican is they don't want to be part of a machine, which means it is really hard To get them together, I think so far what I've seen, and the jury's out. I mean, let's let's be clear; he's only had a couple weeks. I would say jumping. You know, I had a fairly big challenge because I jumped from backbench to the whip, which was the number two job when you're in the opposition, and then I jumped from whip to speaker without ever becoming the minority leader. Um, But I would say compared to that, what he's doing, going from being a a leader of a subcommittee uh, all the way to speaker in one night. Um, it's going to take him a couple months to learn the, the rhythm, but I've been, I've been communicating with his team, and I think, um, and I watch him on TV, and I think so far uh, he's very authentic. And I think authenticity is extraordinarily important uh, in an age where people are frightened and confused, and they sort of know that they don't know. And I think uh, Mike, Mike Johnson might turn out to be okay.
0: Okay. Do you think he'll be able to avoid another government shutdown?
1: No. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's going to happen again. Yeah. Well, he's going to try. But here's what here's what people forget. When when House Republicans say we need to pass all the appropriations bills, that's the House. Then the Senate has to pass them. Then you have to go to conference. Then you got to negotiate with the White House. Uh, These things, you know. and, And I think Johnson understands this. This is a if you're lucky, you'll get it all done by January or February uh, just because of the nature of the current system. Um, plus, he is going to be much more conservative than either um, the Democratic leadership in the Senate or the Biden White House. And I think he's going to be pretty calm about being that conservative. He's just been, because I always try to tell people, I used to tell Kevin this, you know, the, the speaker is the only constitutional office in the legislative branch. It's the only only job this mentioned. And you're third in line to be president or second in line after the vice president. Um, Once he passed, for example, aid to Israel with an offset, he doesn't actually have to do very much. I mean, he can say, if he he can take the heat, he can say to the Senate and the White House, you, you know, you want to help Israel? You got a bill. Good luck. Give me a call when you want to have the signing ceremony. But he doesn't, he, he shouldn't feel pressured to do anything. And I think now he's got to figure out how does he get votes together? He's talking about, for example, combining aid to Ukraine, which, which I strongly favor because I think we are really underestimating how dangerous Russia is. Uh, and I think if you don't stop Russia and Ukraine, you're, you're just opening a nightmare for the future. So I think, and he's talking about combining real change on the border with aid with to um, Ukraine, Ukraine, and I noticed in the New York Post, for example, which is a great place to put it, he said, if New York doesn't drop being a sanctuary city, I'm opposed to any aid. He said, why would we send federal money to take care of people in New York City said it wanted. And I think you're going to see that kind of approach that just says we need real change. And and by the way, the Republicans swept Long Island in part because of immigration and crime right uh, it 's one mm-hmm. of the big bright spots with Republicans last Tuesday. were you it,
0: surprised by the, the the results last Tuesday? Yes,
1: I, I was surprised and i 've done a, lot, a great deal of thinking about it since and I think that uh, a good friend of mine said we don 't we do not understand today the Fetterman rule, and the Fetterman rule is when you have a machine that can elect Fetterman, you have a machine that can elect almost anybody, and I think that Republicans don 't understand. They're not running against another candidate. They're running against an entire system of power. And until they figure that out and design uh, countervailing strategies, they're going to continue to be very disappointed.
0: In 1994, um, I guess 6 million, I read in your book, 6 million more Republicans voted than usual. Is turnout the issue? Is this systemic, getting out the vote in big cities?
1: Turnout's part of the issue. Uh, uh, two quick stories. One. In 1985, uh, Lee Atwater convinced Reagan to appoint a very conservative Democrat to the, to the federal judgeship, clearing a, creating a special election in, in Texas where we had a Texas A&M quarterback call American willing to run as a Republican. We ran a brilliant campaign, We spent a huge amount of money. He got 49.2% of the vote. And I was already deeply involved in trying to become a majority. And I sort of blew up and said, you know, if we got to 49.2, why didn't we win? What what, what did we miss? So they sent the team that ran the campaign over to brief me. And after three hours, I said, okay, let me get this. We were running in a district in which there were 14 counties, none of which had a single elected Republican. The governor released 7,000 state workers to help with voter turnout. And the union sent phone banks from as far away as New Jersey. And I said, you know, we are a mid-sized college team trying to play in the Super Bowl. And part of the story of March the Majority is it took me 16 years to create a system big enough to compete. And I think one of the reasons I wrote the book is it became so obvious to me that none of the current generation of Republicans understand Reagan or understand what we did in 94. And they're just floundering around being stupid. Uh, and and uh, you know you you're not going to be able to govern the country and solve the problems if you can't win elections, and so they're they're going to have to do very profound rethinking in the next six months, and I think really confront how different the the game is today from the way their consultants think it is.
0: Do you think technology could play a role? Uh, you introduced the Thomas system getting the business, you know, the Congress online. Yeah, I did. You say you're a a fan of C-SPAN as well, (laughs) because it creates transparency. Do you see a day when voting could take place online? Is there a reason? Or what other uses could
1: technology? Well, the the danger there, and we see this now with the the machine computing, in a sense, it it actually makes it easier to rig elections. Uh, Unless you have absolute total trust, and I think... Since you're talking about a huge amount of power, I mean, this is a 6.2 trillion dollar federal budget right now. Well, it's amazing what people will do for 6.2 trillion dollars. Uh, so, and then ironically, the French vote in one day with paper ballots and count everything by midnight. This, <laughs> if you think about it, it's really kind of strange. Uh, so, I, I I think this is a, a zone where. Uh, and I'm. And I'm generally. You're right. I'm generally in favor of technology. One. One of my proudest moments. Uh, once we won, we had a member from from uh, Michigan, who was a physicist who'd been in the state legislature, and he'd put the state legislature online. And he called me about three days after we became a majority. And he said, "Why don't we put the Congress online?" I said, "Well, you know, can we do that?" And he said, "Yes." Yeah. So I, I called Governor John Engler. who uh, was one of my great friends and a great entrepreneurial governor. And he said, "Yeah, he, he can probably get it done." So. We literally the day after I was sworn in, we turned the switch, and the Thomas system went online. And uh, the one of the proudest moments of my speakership, Bill Archer, who was chairman of, of Ways and Means, who had gotten elected in '72, and who clearly was not computer literate, but nonetheless, he got to he gets up, he's the first person to do this. He gets up and he says, "I've now introduced the Tax Reduction Act of 1995, and you can find it at the following URL." And he read where the act was was literally online and and said, you know, you don't have to have a lobbyist. You don't have to belong to a trade association. Anyone, anywhere in the world can read this bill. And I thought that was, in some very fundamental ways, the right way to go. And I think if they would put all of the bills online with 72-hour layover, the number of Americans who would get really good at investigating bills and noting things that are stupid, um, would really, I think, help the system significantly.
0: So I can't help but ask you what you think will happen in the presidential elections. And I know you know your organization does polling as well, and I want to talk about that. But RFK has 25 percent, uh, Trump 33 percent, Biden. What is, do you think that Joe Manchin, for example, saying that he's going to be looking at a run, do you think that the two-party system can persist? Or are we headed into something else?
1: No, it'll structurally persist because we, and I I actually think it's a dramatically better system than these these various proportional systems that lead to sort of endless chaos and maneuvering. And I mean, if you watch some of these countries, it's embarrassing. Um, Because what it does is it forces finality. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you you have to understand that, that what makes the political system at the level you're describing so complicated is that it's a little bit like you invent a product, but you have to then manufacture it. And when you manufacture it, you have to then market it. And when you market it, you have to be able to deliver it. Uh, and you go through a whole series of linkages. So take Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And uh, one of the things I recommend to everybody is Mark Halperin's daily newsletter on the wide world of news, which I is I believe the best single political newsletter I ever read. I read it every single day. Uh, And Halperin keeps telling people he can't get on the ballot. That it is so hard to be a totally independent candidate at his level, unless you're Ross Perot and you write a check for $20 million. So he thinks that that while Kennedy, in terms of polling, is impressive, that they will figure out sometime in the next couple of months, he's just not going to be on the ballot. Um, On the other hand, uh, the no-labels people, Uh, have taken the opposite approach. They're they're, going to be on the belt. They've done all the groundwork. Uh, Their problem is they actually don't have a cause except being nice, and they don't actually have a candidate. Now, I would not be shocked, uh, and this is the first time I've said this, so I'm saying it right here on your podcast. I would not be shocked to see a Romney-Mansion ticket. Wow. Uh, wow. Mitt is retiring. He's always wanted to be president. A mm-hmm. uh, mansion understands he can't get reelected in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that would, that would be sort of the right gravitas. Uh, they still would have a huge problem. I mean, um, I, I saw the one poll that, that showed, uh, how close it was. I frankly don't believe it. Um, I don't think there's any circumstance where Trump is below 40 and probably not many circumstances where he's below 45. Uh, but what people don't understand about Trump is that he's actually not a candidate. He is the uh, leader of a movement. And as the leader of a movement, you have a totally different emotional bond than you do when you're a candidate. Uh, my current guess, uh, the, the, the other challenge, which, which Halpern and I think both agree on, uh, Joe Biden isn't going to quit. I mean, this idea that he's going to gracefully say, well, I know I'm too old. and I know I keep falling down and I know I might not be able to beat Trump. So for the good of the country, I think I'll get out. First of all, if he did that, Kamala Harris would promptly say she ought to be the nominee. And, she, and given the makeup of the Democratic Party, she would have an enormous net advantage. I mean, most Americans may think she's incompetent, but inside the Democratic Party, that's right. not true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and secondly... Uh, all these other ambitious people, and there are a lot of good, smart, ambitious people out there, they'd end up fighting each other if they could get on the ballot. And every week that goes by, it gets harder to get on the ballot, even, even to get in the primaries. And so, uh, it's, it's, I, I look, I have, I have two hats. I'm, I am a politician who has run for office and who's tried to organize power, and I'm a historian. Uh, The politician side of me worries a lot about the level of chaos. The historian in me loves it. Right. I mean, this is (laughs) the the, drama. You you get up every morning and think, I wonder what's happening this week.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, Net-Net, do you think then, you know, maybe voter turnout is low for these off-year elections. But if Trump is truly the leader of a movement, uh, maybe people will be more likely to vote.
1: Oh, they, there's, no, there's no question that Trump's capacity to turn out vote is, is pretty remarkable. But, it, but it's also um, that the, there's been a revolution in the two parties. Uh, the Republicans used to be the country club party of people who were very well off and who were very civic minded. And the, so they actually did better in off year elections. And the Democrats used to be the party of the working class uh, who didn't pay much attention but would show up in presidential years. We've now reversed that. Uh, the party of the highly educated elites is the Democratic Party. Now, that, that is such a revolution from, say, 1950, that it's really almost hard to imagine. And increasingly, the party of blue-collar workers, including African-Americans and Latinos, is the Republican Party. I mean, every, every time they go after Trump legally, he gains more votes in the black community. It's just, it's the most, I would never have imagined it. Uh, but I talked to a guy two days ago who was saying that there are an amazing number of places in the black community now where you'll go into a barber shop and the Trump picture of the mugshot will be hanging on the wall. Wow. And it's, be, and it, well, it's because they identify mm-hmm. with him. Mm-hmm. They get harassed. He gets harassed.
0: Hmm. So, Nat, 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 what's your prediction then for the election? Will Trump well, win?
1: Let, let me start with where I'm really confident. Okay. Barring an enormous health problem, mm-hmm. Donald Trump is the Republican nominee. It's basically over. Right. Uh, he's at about sixty percent against the field. The closest person right now is DeSantis at fourteen, who whose campaign is a case study in collapsing. Um, DeSantis may actually get passed by Nikki Haley, uh, but if you go to South Carolina last week, uh, Trump is beating Nikki Haley forty-nine to nineteen. So, you know, it's probable that Trump will carry her home state. He's also leading the Santas in Florida. Um, so, uh, so I'm pretty confident telling you I think Trump will be the nominee. I personally think that it is oh, because of age and everything else. And, and, and Biden's clearly a much older person than Trump, even though their age difference isn't that great, but their, their, their biological genetic differences are. Um, I would say the odds are probably seventy percent that Biden will be the Democratic nominee, and that Kamala will be the Democratic vice presidential nominee. And I, and I something you actually are probably much better at than I am. If if the trend lines continue, for example, on on debt and on inflation, as you point out, and correct me if I've had this this Treasury bond thing wrong, but I think I think uh, failed Treasury offerings almost guarantee that you're going to end up. Uh, Having interest rates go higher in the in the real market, uh, whatever the Fed wants to try to do um, and uh, inflation is not going away. Uh, we are one major mistake from an oil crisis. I mean if the Iranians, for example, end up uh, getting a big fight with us, you could imagine oil spiking um, if all of these things continue if the drugs continue, the illegal immigrants continue, I think it's it, this is like Jimmy Carter. Say times three or four, um, and I and having lived through that, maybe this is because it's him a one-trick pony. But I remember it came down in in the end. It came down to not him. I mean, uh, you know, the, the the country actually moved to Reagan in the last three weeks before the election, and Reagan won the largest electoral college vote against an incumbent president in American history. And it all happened rapidly. It all happened because they were all sitting there. They didn't want to make a decision. They didn't want to make a decision. And they finally said, you know, it's just too painful. And uh, Halpern made the point uh, in an in event I did with him yesterday. If you look at the underlying data on the, on the key state polls that show Trump beating Biden in every key swing state except Wisconsin, and he's within two points of Wisconsin. But you look up the underlying question. Were you, were you? Are you better off economically under Trump policies or under Biden policies? And it's consistently a twenty five or thirty point advantage for Trump. That's enormous. It's just you know, it's yeah, the economy what, stupid? Uh, you yeah, know. That, that's what Halperin said. He says, mm-hmm. all you guys who think this is somehow going to magically turn around because of abortion, these people are going to be in so much pain economically, and they're going to say, "Do I really want four more years of this?" And I so you know. I mean, it doesn't make me happy. Look, I'm very worried that this is, this is still, despite everything, the most powerful country in the world. And it is still the essential defender of the rule of law and the concept of, of uh, human dignity and human rights. And it really worries me to have us as weak and as confused as we are.
0: Well, uh Things have deteriorated. There's no doubt about it. Question for you. Who do you think Trump's running mate would be if you had to guess? I have
1: no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Donald J. Trump will wake up one morning, mm-hmm. having thought about it for at least a year,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and he will intuit what would be the right person from two levels. One, they they may or may not be able to help you, but you'd like them not to hurt you. Uh this, this is the criteria for picking a vice president. Uh, and two, uh, he was going to want somebody to be loyal. I think he was very badly burned by, by Pence because they had a really profound disagreement. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a quick war story that I think you'll find highly amusing. Please do. I hope you'll find it amusing. So Trump is, was playing a game in the summer of uh, 2016 with the news media. And I think he had actually decided on Pence, but, but he was playing this game that it's either going to be Newt or it's going to be Pence. And so Hannity, who's sort of my younger brother, and I've worked with him since 1990, calls and, and Trump agrees that I should go out to Indianapolis and sit down and meet with him and the entire family and talk about the vice presidency. And, and I, I knew this was hoo-ha, but still, you go, one does, does these things. So I go out there and we sit and talk talk for a little while, and I and, and I and I'm a big fan of Mike Pence's, and I think that uh, he what he did was frankly constitutionally the right thing, and he took great courage to do it. And plus, and I are both very fond of him. He actually sat next to Callister for two years when he was a freshman because she was the chief clerk of the Ag Committee, and then he and so he literally sat in the lo- lowest row, uh, and they would talk every single you know day that they were in session so we have have great personal fondness for Mike but anyhow so we're sitting there I I look, I turned to him I said you can't pick me I said you're a pirate I'm a pirate you can't have a two pirate ticket you have to have a vice president who's normal who can talk to people like Paul Ryan he just broke up laughing (laughs) but it was true so i, I mean uh, look I have uh, despite the fact that on occasion he runs out and he, I, and I tell him i said there's, there's a big Trump who is 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 a remarkable historic figure, and there's this little Trump who comes running out, kicks him in the shins, looks like a fool, uh, and then runs away again. I said, if you could ever just keep the little Trump locked up, he would be so much better off and and i and I recognize that that's you know a significant weakness but having said that this is a very smart man and this is a guy who's very existential he learns every single day of his life he learns about everything uh and uh, he is very methodically rethinking what went right what went wrong what will we do next time and i think he frankly is dramatically better prepared to be president than he was in 2016
0: Well, you know, um, one thing that he did um, in terms of China policy was basically adopted by the Biden administration. Um, And now next week, you know, Biden and Xi are going to be meeting in San Francisco on the sidelines of of APEC. One thing that has surprised me is how um, Democrats and Republicans are united on two things, China and Israel. Um, That's really a difference in terms of of what they're looking at with foreign affairs. Um, I wanted to ask you um, about Taiwan as well. Uh, Kevin McCarthy decided not to go to Taiwan. Nancy Pelosi, as we know, did go to Taiwan, and U.S.-China military relations have suffered, you know, ever since. They're in the process of repair. Do you think Mike Johnson will go to Taiwan? Does he have an interest in that?
1: Well, I mean, he may have an interest because he's a smart guy and a big deal. I suspect, though, at least through the next election, he will be almost entirely a domestic speaker. Yeah. I mean, he has has so much to to do. do. How does he keep a majority Mm -hmm. Uh, and how does he grow the majority so it's manageable? Um, You went to
0: Taiwan as speaker, right? Am I correct?
1: I did. It was, it was actually great fun. the 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 Chinese communists invited had invited me over, and you may remember it was a period of some tension because we actually put two nuclear powered aircraft carriers in the Taiwan Straits under under Clinton, and I was on public te- I was on television strongly endorsing it. And uh, the the communists said, "You know, we'd we'd like you to come over and we'd like to give a couple speeches," which was really kind of fun. I gave uh, two speeches and when I was over there, and uh, there was a Pretty interesting article um, in the New York Times uh, comparing. Gore went just before me and made a fool of himself. And I wandered over and they compared our two trips and how they were handled and so forth. and uh, But we said, We're going to come over and we're going to go to Taiwan. And they said, well, you, you can't go to Taiwan. Uh, and Gardner Peckham, who was doing national security and foreign policy for me, I, I happened to be in the room, he was talking to the Chinese ambassador, and he said, you are not the travel agent of the Speaker of the House. Now, he's, he's happy to work out a face-saving device. For example, I went from China to Japan and then from Japan to Taiwan. I, I didn't see. go directly from China to Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And the guy was all blustering. And, and, and Gardner just said, Look, if you would prefer, he will skip the mainland. And that'll give him a lot more time to be in Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy, of course, began to backpedal like crazy. Mm-hmm. I actually had a weirdly good relationship um, with, with the then leader of, of uh, China, who uh, was, a, was an American uh, studies had a master's degree in american studies and uh, his his master's thesis had been on gone with the wind which was actually in my congressional district and so we had very good conversations about a range of things that people would be surprised by
0: you know that's something that's really suffered recently there are so few americans for example studying in china anymore only 300 i think at the present time and so many fewer people-to-people kind of interactions yep. like that, I think it does not augur well for us understanding you know, China and creating a new, you might have a new group of China experts who have never been to China under these circumstances.
1: So. It's, a, it's a, One of the great American weaknesses is that, and this is true across the whole planet, we have a very hard time uh, thinking through uh, from other people's viewpoints. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's endemic to the American system. And I, I don't know whether it's arrogance or just that we've never acquired the habits.
0: Well, on the opposite end of that spectrum, um, you know, now we're facing a situation where there's discussions about tolerance for terrorism or people who advocate for terrorism. You recently did a poll at Gingrich 360. I think it's the... Is it the America's New Majority Project? Yeah, right, America's New Majority Project. So the results of that, could you share that with us? I thought that those results were amazing.
1: Yeah. What, what, well, what we found was that people have a really deep sense of being offended and opposed to uh, favoring terrorism or being in favor of annihilating Israel. And they are actually prepared. And we ask a series of very tough questions. Basically, and I, I have some trouble even with my own team about this. Uh, but we ask a whole series of questions on the First Amendment. We said, you know, really coming off of a couple comments. One was, of course, the very famous Supreme Court uh, decision that said you don't have the right to steal fire in a crowded theater. Uh, another was uh, Justice Jackson who said, that the Constitution is not a suicide pact. Uh, and Lincoln, who said at one point in the Civil War, you, you can't ask me to uphold one particular law in a way which will then destroy all the other laws. Uh, and, and uh, there are limits, yeah. There are limits, yeah. You know? mm-hmm. and, and so the question, I mean, for example, there's overwhelming support for deporting every non-American who demonstrates in favor of, of Hamas. Uh, There's a clear understanding that Hamas is a terrorist organization. Um, I think that uh, you're going to see a real reaction against the universities. Oh, yes. In fact, Mm -hmm. uh, we're we're talking about uh, whether or not we should propose eliminating uh, the tax deductible status and doing a couple of other things. And one of which, by the way, is very simple. Uh, There is a law on the books which says these universities have to report all foreign money. None of them do it. They just break, break the law blatantly, and I'm going, I'm going to try to get the Congress to, to modify the law to say that the president of the university can go to jail if they don't enforce this rule. Because I'm convinced, for example, uh, at the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Delaware, that the amount of Chinese money that ultimately funded the, the Penn-Biden Center, to give you an example, which, which was run by the current Secretary of State and had 15 current White House staff on it. Uh, working at it. And I think it was all Chinese money. And they just blatantly refused to 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 engage in this. So uh, but what we found was uh, and 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 this is a real challenge because you, you had said this earlier I think eighty or eighty five percent of the Democratic Party is still in favor of Israel. But about ten to fifteen percent really is really is in favor of eliminating Israel. That's a change, yeah. Yeah, you know, and that, that's a huge change. And frankly, it's interesting. Um, one of the Arab parties in the Knesset just expelled one of their members for siding with Hamas. Now, if you look at how gingerly we have dealt so far with our members of Congress who are overtly explicitly pro-Hamas, I thought it was amazing, but it was not a Jewish party. It was an Arab party. <laughs> and, of course, there, there is no, there's no poll ever taken where the Arabs who live in Israel would like to live in either the West Bank or Gaza because uh, they're not crazy.
0: Going back to your, to your university thing, I think the way to solve that, I wouldn't worry about foreign money coming in. I think if you just tax higher education, which has uh, had the greatest inflation of any other product that's produced <laughs> in the United States, that that would... Force reforms of various how, how kinds. You, how
1: would you tax it? I'm, I'm Just like a window. business.
0: Just like a business. Yep. And because, you know, that's, I think that's why inflation took hold there. They didn't have to make the usual business oriented management
1: decisions um, that you would have. But somebody also pointed out to me that, you know, you, the, the current donors can decide not to give to Harvard, but since they're sitting on Something like forty-six billion dollars of endowment. Dollar. They have runway. Yeah, they have a lot yeah. of
0: runway. Yeah,
1: they can survive a long, long time. Yeah.
0: So going back to the terrorism and the poll that you did, do you think? Um, what crossed my mind is if Trump becomes president again, as seems more and more likely. Um, do you think that he would do what he says and deport the, the those
1: people or
0: yes. and? How many are there?
1: It's he, may have, he may have to have passed along. Whether he can do it by himself, I don't know. Right. Although there's, although there's probably, this raises a good question, which I'll have to work on this weekend. Uh, there may be a good behavior clause to student visas and to green cards. Uh, so there may be a, a device which allows you to do it. But yeah, I thought, look, Trump, Trump is, one, one of the interesting things about him, and people tend to forget this, uh, he wasn't in real estate at a financial level. He actually built buildings. He actually worked with blue-collar workers. He actually So He said to me one time, we were in Las Vegas, actually doing an event for Mitt Romney in 2012. And he was talking about the degree to which he could measure the amount of concrete you'd need for a particular project uh, just off the top of his head because he had done it so often. Um, and And in a sense, he's a literalist. So if you say to him, uh, these people really shouldn't be here. His first reaction is, okay, so what is it we have to do so they're not here? Uh, as opposed to, oh, gee, there are 23 Supreme Court decisions and nine laws. and what. His, his answer would be clear, you know, clear the deck, figure it out, and get it done. The other, th- the other thing to remember about Trump, I mean, he was, you know, it's, it's really bizarre. He is much more careful. About American lives than Biden is. Uh, you know, we took out Soleimani, uh, we destroyed ISIS, and took out Baghdadi. Um, and I know for a f- I'm I'm con- I'm convinced because I've heard it from four different sources, one of which was Trump, that he called the head of the Taliban, uh, who at the time was was I think in in either gutter or the UAE, and he said. Uh, I'm willing to work an arrangement out. We will will keep Bagram because it's about an hour away from the Chinese nuclear test fields, Uh, and we will be there permanently. It's not That's not negotiable. And we want to work things out so that we have a reasonable chance for the uh, non-Taliban government to function and survive. Uh, But for this to work, no Americans can be killed. And Apparently he said, and this was a zoom call he apparently, he apparently, FaceTime. He apparently said, "You remember what we do with Soleimani? You remember what we do with Baghdadi?" He said, "I'm sending you a picture of your personal home, and I want you to understand if one more American is killed, I will use every element of American power to destroy your movement." And the guy said, "Every element like nuclear?" He said, "Let me just say, every element." And we did not lose a single American for the rest of the, of the Trump administration. So in that sense, he, he said, you know, well, it was not an accident that the first time Xi and he got together at Mount Largo for dinner, he stepped out briefly to explain that we had just fired Tomahawk missiles at Syria. And it's no accident that he then went back in and said, gee, I'm really sorry I had to take a break. But, you know, we just fired a whole bunch of Tomahawks at Syrian airfields. And the Xi got the message. It was done as much for Xi as it was for the Syrians.
0: I wonder if world leaders um, have taken on board what seems to be, according to polls, the probability that Trump will be back in office, if and if they're going to be adjusting their actions in the interim any
1: differently. So I don't know. Henry Kissinger told me years ago when I first had down, I went to him for, for advice, and he said part of his success was that he would go to foreign countries, and he would always visit the opposition party that was out of power who would be grateful that he would pay attention to them, even though they weren't in power. And then he'd visit, of course, with the official government. And then when he came back years later, they would have reversed roles, and the, both of them would be glad to see him. And he said, you know, they'll always ask you what's going on in America. And he said, now, you actually don't know. But they don't know either. <laughs> and I think that this this is such an amazingly complicated country. I have a hunch. Well, I mean, I mean think about friends you know. Uh, particularly in kind of a university setting or a news media setting, they still can't get their heads around this idea that this guy can have all of these lawsuits, he can have all of these problems, and he's going to be the nominee. I mean, you can argue yes. about the general election. I don't think you uh, you can rationally argue about the nomination. Well, before divorce just disqualified you, that was enough. Yeah. The, the That's right.
0: littlest, the smallest possible things uh, would mean that you couldn't run. That playbook's been torn, torn apart. Yep. So I guess going back to books and to your academic career, I, I remember you did something called Renewing American Civilization. It was a kind of civics course. Do you think we need to, to reinstate civics in American
1: education? Um, I think we should reinstate civics if we can find teachers who are pro-American. Otherwise, it'll just be turned into another excuse to describe slavery and white racism. I was I was in a long-range planning session with a guy named Owen Roberts in December of 91. We were talking about Somalia. And he said, you know, we're not going to teach him how to be productive, et cetera. And I said, well, since we don't teach ourselves, why would we teach them? Mm-hmm. And that was the origin of the course, realizing that we need to go back and revisit the basics. And I just want to say, uh, when we have our occasional phone calls together, I always learn from you. I am I'm very grateful that you give me this amount of time to chat with you.
0: Oh, and thank you.
1: I, th- I think the work you do is remarkable. Oh, Newt, thank
0: you. That, that makes, makes my day, makes my week to hear that. I appreciate it. Again, I'm going to um, tell everybody, March to the Majority, a fascinating book. Fascinating inside baseball of what went on then. Thank you. Newt, thank you for joining me today. And finally, thanks to all the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, especially our producer, Sam Fu. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcasts, please visit our website, econview.com. And don't miss our new China report. If you can, we welcome your support on Substack.